Hey, friends, welcome back as we start a week together again on this Monday, uh, continuing through the book of Exodus. And you may think to yourself, finally, uh, it has been a while that we've been dealing with the plagues. We find ourselves on the cusp of the final plague. We move into chapter 11 today. Um, I'll, I'll read some of this. There's a lot to this, and it stretches out uh, over a couple of chapters, but we'll get into the beginning of it, and we can go from there. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one final plague upon Pharaoh and Egypt afterwards, and afterwards he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor and every woman ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, in the sight of the people. Moses said, this says the Lord, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave behind the handmill, all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as never or ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl at you, though, or any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know the Lord has made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. When all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, leave us you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you in order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed the wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. This is a kind of uh, transition chapter, a bridge chapter, I think, Michael. There is an introduction to the idea of the plague, which... Um, if you've been with us, very much mirrors that beginning of the story when Pharaoh commanded his people to throw the Israelite children, the Hebrew children, into the Nile River. Here the firstborns will um, be afflicted, will be um, killed by this last plague. And God also then predicts not only will Egypt let the the Israelites go, but will actually drive them out and reward them or bribe them or pay them for leaving in order to get rid of them. And um, and then yet again, we finish with the formula, harden Pharaoh's heart. So uh, this, in some ways, Michael, I don't know if this is moving the story along or if it's just kind of gives us a moment of pause and summary, introduces us to a very difficult idea that is on the horizon, and then um, gives us a minute before we continue the story. I think there are many elements here, Clint, that are not new, but in many ways have been summarized in a helpful way. I want to point out here all the way back in verse, um, looks like verse 2, we have that text about how you're going to ask your neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The idea is that you're going to leave the nation of Egypt not as poverty-stricken slaves, but you're actually going to leave as those who've been blessed by God. You're going to be looked favorably upon, not just in terms of your deliverance, but in terms of God's provision for the people. 
Uh, that's really, really interesting. Of course, we know things already because we've seen it happen. Things like Moses' great importance here we have listed. Um, we do have that introduction of the, um, the the actual judgment itself, Clint. But then, you know, we have here verse 9. I think this is maybe an apt su- summary of all of the uh, different things that we've seen before, and that is this idea that the Pharaoh's not going to listen, God says, and that's for the sake of, in order that, that language is important, because uh, then others will see that God's wonders will be made multiplied in the land of Egypt. Once again, Clint, we've said this a thousand times, it bears being said again, that this is ultimately the plagues represent God's power over and against Pharaoh, who is unable to match God in wit or in strength. That is an, uh, an important thing that has been throughout the whole thing. Um, and once again, we, the reader, are told in this aside at the end of 10, that when the Lord hardens the Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh does not let the people go out of the land. So when God says, hey, Moses, this is why this is going to happen, we as the reader are supposed to hear in that because ultimately God is the one in control of this situation. I think where those two things cross over is in an interesting Venn diagram here, Clint, and I'm going to just admit to you, I think it's a troubling Venn diagram. I don't, there's no summarizing of it for me that I, I think is just clearly delineated and and resolves all the tension. That is, you have God who's in control, and you have the introduction of a vast punishment that we know already, we've been told, is going to take the life of children. These two things, God is in control, and this is what will be required in the judgment, have now been presented as facts. This is what will be. We, as the reader, know that God is faithful to accomplish that task. Um, this is setting up for us, Clint, what is going to be a brutal, a brutal plague to follow. And, uh, you know, the text makes it clear that that God's in control throughout it all. Yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a difficult part of the story for a lot of reasons, Michael. I, you know, it's sensitive content. It's the harming of children. Uh, um, I think the only thing – I don't think I can make that acceptable – I think the only thing I can add is that through the lens of Exodus, through the lens of the Hebrew sacred text, it really is the idea of going to war, that Pharaoh has declared war upon God and his people, and God will now answer that ultimately. And so even this business about taking silver, taking gold, um, there's a sense in which that is plundering. And where the nation of Israel would would celebrate that God has gone to war on their behalf, has answered the Pharaoh's violence with God's justice, uh, literally a life for life, and that in doing so has also simultaneously made a laughing stock of Egypt, made an example out of them, and plunders the nation by taking some of their possessions, some of their silver and gold, all with the people really doing none of that, that that yeah, God right. is the warrior who goes to battle on their behalf. And I, and I think that doesn't make the story maybe any more comfortable, but it makes it, I think, more understandable. I think that it adds to it. You really almost need to think of this as a war story, because that's, I think, t- 
to some extent, the lens through which it's told. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that, Clint. I would point out that there is an extent of communicating what to expect happening here like you do have in those war situations where a nation state will sort of make that public PSA and say, by the way, if you do this, we're going to do this. Or by the way, we're going to have these military exercises and and this is what it, it, it exists for. I mean, there is an extent here where God makes it very clear from the start, this is what will happen and this is why it will happen. And I think it's the why that we as the reader should be most attentive to, because fundamentally, that is the lesson being taught. And make no mistake about it, when we turn into chapter 12, Clint, and we begin talking about Passover, what we transition into is what where we've had the setup of what God is going to do and why, what it's going to flow into is a pattern that the people are called to live into and a religious observance that is going to happen all the way to today, right? So over thousands and thousands and thousands of years that what we see happening right now is a culture-making, community-defining, nation-under-God kind of instituting moment. And it's happening in the midst of great turmoil and even, to use that metaphor, a war with Pharaoh. God is warring with Pharaoh and the people of Israel are going to be uh, claimed and named—well, they are claimed by God, but they're, they're going to be the ones carried out by God. And in doing so, uh, God will be their only source of leadership and, and the one in whom they trust for their futures. I think that is a substantial lesson that precedes— the, the kind of thing that we're going to see as the story continues. Yeah, and as we move into that 12th chapter, Michael, I, I think rather than read this, kind of summarize, I'll, I'll try to grab some key verses here. Uh, it, it's interesting that the first instructions come to the people of Israel. Moses and Aaron are told this is going to be the beginning of the month, the first month of the year for you. So this is going to, their freedom from Egypt is going to essentially set the calendar for them as a people and as a nation. And the instructions they're given are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor to obtain one, and the lamb be divided in proportion to the number of people. Then um, this is, I think, significant, Michael, particularly in light of the New Testament. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then you shall slaughter it at twilight. Take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb the same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. And this is how you'll eat it, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down every firstborn in the land, both human beings and animals. On all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the house where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you 
when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is the this is the basis of it, Michael. It goes on to describe that they will enact uh, a celebration of this every year, but this is the heart of what God calls the people to do. Join with neighbors if necessary, roast a lamb, make sure that it is entirely consumed, and mark the their house with the blood. Um, take some of the blood of the lamb, the physical, literal blood of the lamb, and put it on the posts of the doors. And the idea is that when this angel of death, when the Spirit of God moves through to do destruction upon Egypt, that he will literally pass over. They, they will move beyond each house that is marked by the blood of the lamb. So that's where we get the word Passover. That's, that's the idea of this plague, um, that there is preparation, there is a meal, there is community, there are instructions, and you are to be ready to go. The idea of Passover is mm-hmm. that it indicates now is the time that God is acting on our behalf and we should be ready to respond. So, Clint, you're right to point out that a Christian understands that this becomes an essential backdrop to the entire Christian story. Of course, Christian communion uh, is lived out in the midst of this story because Jesus is at Passover with his disciples when he gives this meal to them. And, and so there's a sense in which even the modern Christian practice of the Lord's Supper participates in at least a spiritual connection to this story that we have here. And it, it's worth noting that, to your point, Clint, that there's a readiness that's expected. Uh, there's a preparation which is explicit. Uh, there is a desire for the people to know uh, that this celebration is not about um, the the great richness of it. It's not about the flavor of the food because, in fact, we're told that it should be bitter herbs. The idea is that this is a moment which the people recognize that much like Noah and the ark, the ark being that saving instrument that God uses, here, Clint, we have the blood on the doorpost being the sign of God's faithfulness to God's people. And of course, the Christian tradition picks this up. We have this throughout the New Testament letters, this idea of Jesus's blood spilt for the sake of those who uh, he came to die for. Uh, we have that very connection of the idea that the the moment in which the, the lamb would have been sacrificed was the moment when Jesus dies on the cross. The, the Christian church in its day, its earliest days, found deep, deep meaning and connection in this story. And there is actually this divided nature in biblical interpretation. Some are going to look at a story like this and say, we need to only understand what it meant in Exodus and what it means to the people of Israel. That's a valid way of understanding this text. As those who live in the Christian community, it's impossible for us to not read the text and not see the things that in the first generation of Christians, we were already connecting to and understanding as additional meanings within a story like this. And so I'm just saying that, Clint, as a way of owning my own bias coming into this. I certainly do bring that Christian vantage uh, and do so because that that's the community in which I stand. But when you look at a text like this, this is a nation-defining, people 
constituting text. This tells the people, this is who we are. We are the people who have been spared by God and we're the people defined by the blood over the doorpost. This will be for them, not just for Exodus, but for all the scriptures that follow in the Old Testament, yet alone the new, a a transformative understanding moment. Yeah, this remains a a central component of Jewish faith and they have a, an annual celebration of it that reenacts many of these elements. Um, we can talk about the Passover and its modern practice, but this has also become a, a paradigm for Christians. Christians borrowed heavily from this language to describe and understand. I mean, John calls Jesus the Lamb of the world. You, you know, we see that. His blood saves us from death. Death passes over the the believer. There's many, many ties to this, and we can flush that out as we continue to go through here. I think tomorrow um, there's a little commentary here that has to do with the the celebration of it in the future. I think we'll jump ahead a little bit in the story. We'll probably uh, enter back into the text around verse 21, and we'll continue to look at what this means and... uh, how it functions in the story. So thanks for being with us today. Hope you can join us tomorrow as well. See you.